uh, my wife and I, when we were in Chicago, uh, there were two churches um, that we attended. And uh, the first one uh, was a Korean-American church congregation, and um, it had just gone through a church split uh, right before we started attending. We did not know. Um, And we didn't know, uh, even though we could sense some things within the congregation, right? So there were, uh, there were definitely cliques that were taking place, and we were new, uh, and, and we felt so outside of whatever else was going on in the church. Uh, there were definitely cliques, like people that you never see talking to each other, but only talk to those groups, right? We noticed this before we even knew that there was a church split. And we also noticed, um, at least I did, I, I didn't specifically talk about this with Minji, but I noticed that the preaching, it seemed to be that there always was an agenda, or it seemed that way behind the preaching, like he was trying to push something, uh, like he was on one of the sides, right? So when they told me that there was a split, it made sense to me. And then the second church that we attended in Chicago, still very dear to our hearts, also went through a church split right before we arrived at the church. Um, And you could definitely tell, though it wasn't as evident in the first church, because the reality is a disunity within the church affects every aspect of church function. It affects the evangelism, the discipleship, because you have some people that want to do it this way, some people want to do it this way, and sometimes it just doesn't happen at all. It affects the preaching, because often instead of preaching the pure word of God, we're preaching an agenda trying to persuade people to be on one side. Disunity in the church affects every aspect of church function, which is why it's so incredibly important that we are unified in Christ. Um, And today, we're going to get three aspects of church unity. Uh, The first one being the motivation of church unity. Why do it? The second being the matter of church unity. What is it made of? Right? What is it? What is church unity? What is Christian unity? And the third being the means of Christian unity. So now that we're ready to do it, we know what it is, how do we get there? And that's where we're going today. Admittedly, we're going to be on the third one for the majority of the time because that's the example of Christ, right? Verses 5 through 11. So we'll get through the motivation, the matter, and then we'll focus a lot on the means. How do we get there as a church, as a people of God? Well, the church at Philippi is mostly quite healthy, a pretty healthy church, because Paul, uh, in the first chapter, in verse 4, he was thankful of this church and the reports he heard of their growth and obedience. Uh, Most of what Paul says about this church is positive. Uh, They're generous and give Paul financial support. They send him this dude named Epaphroditus to support Paul, to help him, right? Uh, They're a giving church. There's no mention of any specific moral issue or even any doctrinal issue at the church in Philippi. They're almost the model church. However, there is one lingering problem or at least a suggestion of a problem, and that is their unity. Although they're almost the model church, there are a few times that Paul pleads the church to be unified. Uh, The passage that Pastor James discussed last time together, Philippians chapter 1 verses 27 through 30, Uh, towards the end of verse 27, says that Paul desires to hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
And we also have our passage today where Paul goes into great depth and illustrates his point uh, with the life of Jesus. Not just Jesus, but Timothy, Paul, Epaphroditus. Um, And in the last chapter, in chapter 4, Paul mentions uh, these two characters. I don't really know how to pronounce their name. Um, So, whatever. Uh, (laughs) Not whatever, okay, but... uh, Eudia, we'll say that, Eudia. This is uh, in chapter 4. I urge uh, Eudia and I urge Syntyche, E, maybe, to live in harmony in the Lord. So there are these two... Uh, women in this church that are in disunity. So there's at least that, right? There's at least these two uh, people in the church that are not unified. And Paul's concerned about this, as he should be, because it could affect the entire function of the church, right? As we've already mentioned. <clears throat> and we know that unity is crucial for the health of the church and is close to the heart of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse 10 says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly unified in mind and thought. And in fact, the church was founded upon unity. The foundations of the church. Acts chapter 4, verse 32, which is up on the screen. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Unity is a crucial aspect of church function and church health. All right. So first, the motivation of Christian unity. Though we have briefly discussed it, we're going to discuss it from our text in verses 1 through 11 because it is a little bit different. Um, Why should we seek to be united? Well, Paul says in verse 1, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, then he continues in verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And I think our text is a continuation of the previous texts, which read again, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Uh, This is verses 27 to 30 of chapter 1. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. It has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. In chapter 1, Paul explains and illustrates external conflict coming in. All right, I already taught the kids today, so my voice is already out. So if that's a concern, there it is. I have a weak voice. All right, it's not that funny. That's okay. So in chapter one, Paul is explaining external conflict against the church, persecution, right? Now he's transitioning, talking about internal conflict within the church. So right, so there's external conflict coming this way, and now there's internal conflict within the church that we need to take care of. And What's important is the connecting word between these two passages, therefore, or so. More than connecting the passage to the previous one, the grammar of the text indicates that what Paul says here about internal conflict, the unity within the church, is based on what he said about external conflict at the end of chapter 1. The way to overcome external conflict, persecution, attacks on the church, is to first overcome internal conflict within the church. 
If we are going to stand against the world, we must first stand together as a church. So what reason specifically does Paul give for church unity? Paul uses four if statements. And um, these ifs really aren't speculative. It's not, well, maybe if this is true, right? It could actually in the Greek be translated since or because. Since these things are true, do this. Um, But specifically he says, if since there is Or therefore, because there is fellowship in Christ, it could say this, because there is consolation of love, because there is fellowship with the Spirit, because there is affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. So these are the motives of Christian unity. Simply put, because of what Christ has done and continues to do for us. Why be united? Because of what Christ has done and continues to do for us. Have you ever been encouraged by Christ? Uh, This word encourage is uh, periklesis in the Greek. Literally, coming alongside to comfort. And the Philippians were suffering. They were receiving persecution, right? So surely in their suffering, they were also being comforted by Christ. Uh, Isn't it just great to belong to him? Uh, That in suffering, we have a comforter in the Holy Spirit. Uh, That in suffering, we have a hope in Christ. Uh, We have a loving father who has sent his son to die for our sins. We have the hope of eternal life in all situations. Have you received the love of the Father through the blood of the Son? Have you ever felt the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit in times of difficulty? Then comfort others. Then love others. Then extend that to your fellow brother and sister in Christ. Therefore, be united in him. Is basically what Paul is getting at here. And what's so great about this is that it isn't blind obedience. Like, hey, be united because I say so. Although, that would be enough, right? If if that was the case. Uh, But instead, we have good reason to obey God's call to unity. We obey his command to be unified out of gratitude for what he's done for us. We love our fellow Christian because our our Father loves us even in our sin. We extend forgiveness because our Heavenly Father has so graciously forgiven us. We are able to comfort others because the Holy Spirit comforts us in our weakness. So what's our motivation for Christian unity? What Christ has done and continues to do for us. So now that we're ready to go, we're motivated, right? Ready to be unified. What is it? Uh, What what is the matter of Christian unity? What is it made of? And there are three things we're going to touch on today. First, a common perspective. A common perspective. He says in verse 2, Being of the same mind. Uh, This phrase in the Greek is mentioned 10 times in the book of Philippians. It literally means to think the same. Thinking properly is essential to Christian unity. The reason why we can be unified is because we believe the same things about Christ. Not that we believe everything the same, right? There are secondary issues that we definitely can disagree on. But we have a common perspective of gospel truths. Uh, Paul believes the doctrine, what we believe about God matters. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. He says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires. They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 says this. Dear friends, 
Do not merely, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Scripture is quite clear that thinking properly about the gospel is foundational for Christian unity. And again, it's not that we have to have the same opinions about everything or that we have to agree on all secondary issues, but we do have to have the same perspective on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have a common perspective, but we also have a common passion. A common passion. He says in the same verse, maintaining the same love. So there's harmony of gospel views and there's harmony of love for one another. It's not just the mind, but also the heart. We must truly love one another, want the best for one another. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, even connects correct knowledge of biblical truth with the outpouring of love. He says, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. The church is to be unified with a common perspective and a common passion for one another. They are to have the same passion. So they have a common perspective, a common passion, but also a common purpose. A common purpose. Because then he says, being in full accord and of one mind. Full accord and of one mind. This, this phrase, in full accord, literally means in one spirit. Right? Everything that makes up a person, their soul is to be the same. We are to be united in mind, in heart, and in soul. We are to have the same ambition for our lives. And the tone in this last phrase here is one of mission or doing something. Uh, the NASB translates this portion as intent on one purpose. That one mind there, intent on one purpose. And what is our purpose? Uh, so much could be said about this, but basically Matthew chapter 8, 28, verse 19, I think is a good place to start. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. To magnify Christ and to glorify God. To make disciples of all nations and to spread the gospel where possible. So, <coughs> I, had a, uh, I had a friend. Uh, this was in college. And my first year of college. Okay, just a warning. I know this is only my second sermon. Um, and the last sermon I gave a basketball illustration. I'm going to do it again. I'm sorry. Um, it's my lived experience. I hope I'm not forcing this upon you. It's what's going to happen, though. So, um, <laughs> anyways, my first year at Moody Bible Institute, um, I, I got this much playing time. Uh, I was a bench warmer, is what they call it. I didn't play at all. I played maybe 13 minutes the entire season. Okay? Didn't play at all. Second season came around, and um, 
First day of practice, I broke my foot. I was very sad. First day of practice, made the team, very excited. Broke my foot. Um, third year, this was it. This was the year. I was going to get on the court. I was going to get some PT. It was going to be great. And then before season, we have these open gyms, right? And uh, this guy walked in, about six foot one. Um, he, he looked like a hooper. Right? He looked like a, I don't look like a basketball player. He looked like a basketball player, right? And I was like, oh, I hope he doesn't try out for the team. Uh, well, you, you can see where this is going. He did try out for the team, and he's basically the same player I am, except a little bit better. So um, he tried out for the team, made the team, and I hated his guts. I hated him so much uh, because this was my year, right? This was it. I was going to get on the court. I was going to get some PT. We were going to win the championship because of me, right? This was it. Um, so I, I got, we were at practice, and we would just go head-to-head because we were battling for the same position. Okay. He won. Okay, so he got, he got the starting position, and um, over me, and I hated him for it. Uh, so much so that I started to talk about him behind his back with the other players. I hated him. I resented him because that was what I wanted. I wanted the PT. And so much so, I didn't care about winning anymore. I didn't care about why we were even out here because I wanted what I wanted. So much so, it started to divide the team. And we started to see the effects of it on the court. And it wasn't until one game that he came up to me. Oh, and the reason he came up to me is because this game, uh, the coach was announcing the starting lineup and my name was called instead of Joe's, who was that um, other player. And I was so excited. I had finally won. I had finally triumphed. And I got on the court ready to start the game. We got killed by like 50 points. I'm ready to start the game and Joe comes up to me and he says, you know what? Whoever plays, you or me, I have your back. After everything I had done, after everything I had said behind his back, he still had the purpose of the team in mind. And so often I think we can get trapped in our own agenda for what we should be doing in the church, right? Selfishly so. And we forget what the church is really all about and living for that instead of what we want, right? Because if we constantly do that, this is what's going to happen, not this. So if we understand the purpose of the church, we should all be working towards that together. And that's part of being united, that we have a common purpose together. And so now that we're motivated to be united in Christ, and now that we sort of understand the matter of Christian unity, what it's made of, a common perspective, passion, and purpose, um, now how do we get there? Where do we go from here? And I think the answer we find in verse 3, it reads like this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Simply put, the means of Christian unity is Christ-like humility. The means of Christian unity is Christ-like humility. And as I said before, we're going to now get into the means. And there are four aspects of Christ's humility that I think are amazing. And I love this text because it's all about Jesus, right? The reason we come to church, the reason we get up in the morning, I get so excited, right, about preaching this text because it is all about Christ. 
So not only are we learning about how we can be humble, but we're also just looking at Christ and trying to worship, right? Trying, trying to be in awe for what he's done for us. And I think this text, oh, it's, it's great. Humility first in substance. The humility of Christ in substance. It says in verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus is fully God. This is why Jesus says to Philip in the upper room, uh, Philip is like, you know, you always talk about the Father. Why don't you just show us the Father? And Jesus responds with this in John chapter 14, verses 8 through 9. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? You're asking an elementary question on graduation day. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is God visible. Jesus, uh, John starts his gospel with, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John chapter 8, 58. Jesus says to the Pharisees, who are curious, they're like, okay, you're so young, how can you say that you know our father Abraham? You're, you're 30. What's up with that? And Jesus says, truly I tell you, before Abraham was I am, intentionally breaking grammatical consistency to make a point. Before Abraham was, I am. John finishes his gospel with the scene of Thomas finally seeing Jesus for who he is in John chapter 20. He feels the wounds of Jesus and asserts, my Lord and my God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, he being Jesus is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. And upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus Christ is fully God. Uh, Verse 6. Describes Christ as being in the form of God it says. Uh, This statement refers to the eternal nature of Christ. Before he came into the world as a human being. He was in the form of God. Uh, The word form means an outward expression of an inward reality. An essential form which never alters. never, Never changes. Uh, Verse 6 says, also says that he had equality with God, uh, meaning that the pre-incarnate Christ totally shared the fullness of God's nature. So he came as human, but is 100% divine, and as God manifested to us. Jesus being anything less than divine is against the teachings of Scripture and the teachings of Jesus himself. He is God. But... When he came into the world, he came humbly. He was born in a stable. He was laid in a manger, a place where animals fed. He lived in a town of little notoriety. His life was an expression of profound humility. Our Lord had no home. He had basically the clothes on his back. He had a group of poor fishermen followers. This, all a part of his humiliation. And and you have to keep in mind, this is the second person of the Trinity. This is Jesus Christ in the flesh. The king of glory, the king of kings, the one who is head over all things, the son of God. And he said, the birds have nests. The son of man has no place to lay his head. When he arrived at his coronation in John chapter 12, he came into the city, not riding on a white horse, which might have appeared more messianic, but he came in on a donkey, and not just on a donkey, but a colt of a donkey. He could have declared that his glory was too precious to disrobe for sinners. He could have declared that his position was too high to condescend for sinners. 
He could have declared that his power was too great to lay aside for sinners. He could have declared that his heavenly possessions were too valuable to part with for sinners. He could have declared that his blood was too good to be shed for sinners. He could have declared that his hands were too holy to be pierced for sinners, but he didn't. And similarly to Christ, in a much lesser sense, in order for unity to be possible within the church, we must give up our rights and our prestige for the betterment of others and our relationship with others. In our marriages, we must give up our need to always be right and that sense of entitlement that says, I deserve this because of this or that. And those of us with positions in church or at school need to be constantly and daily lowering ourselves for the benefit of others. That's the humility of Christ in substance. And secondly, the humility of Christ in service. The humility of Christ in service. This is verse 7. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man. Uh, This phrase, emptied himself, it's an interesting one that has caused a lot of debate. Uh, But it's quite clear that Christ did not empty himself of any deity, of any godness, right? A part of being God, according to scripture, is being eternal and possessing eternal characteristics, Now, if Christ stopped being divine, it would be inconsistent with his divine nature. No, Christ did not empty himself of divinity. So what did he empty? He emptied himself of the prestige and privilege of being divine. Uh, He did not cease being God, but he let go of the prestige and glory he shared with the Father. John chapter 17. I believe it's uh, verse 4. Because I didn't put the verse, verse 4 and 5. Yes. Jesus says this before he goes to the cross. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus emptied himself of a certain glory that he shared with the Father. He emptied himself of a certain glory and prestige that comes with being God and is now concealed, not absent, but concealed in his human body. And the phrase bondservant, I think, is quite powerful here because it's not just servant but it's like the lowest of servants. And this is a characteristic of our Savior. If Jesus had come as a king, king of the world, he would still be condescending. He would still be coming down. He would still be lowering himself, but he didn't. He came as a servant. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Uh, John chapter 13, we have the scene of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. The disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. So Jesus uh, showed them the attitude of a servant. Um, And after Jesus washed their feet, he said to them, in verse 12, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger um, blessed, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Jesus washed their feet so they could see a clear example of someone holding a high position, stooping to serve others. We should never think of ourselves too lofty or too high to serve. 
Not, not, not only did Jesus wash the disciples' feet, but he took time to teach them, no matter how stubborn they were. He fed the hungry, healed the sick, welcomed the children, visited the house of the despised, raised the dead. Uh, servants don't get caught up in a sense of entitlement, but rather give of themselves in service. And it's possible that we don't have unity in our relationships, unity within our missional families, whatever it might be, in our families uh, at home and with our spouses, uh, because we refuse to serve or have a servant's heart. At the very least, we don't want to be treated like a servant. The desire to be served or esteemed as greater is often the catalyst for discord in relationship. The desire to be served or esteemed as greater is often the catalyst for discord in relationship. But this was not the attitude of Christ. Even though Christ deserved worship, deserved glory, he chose to be a lowly servant to those in need. And this is to be our mindset. Um, One of my mentors, Pastor Greg Brown, in his commentary on this text, says very simply, but I think it's helpful as an application. He said this, Uh, This is what a servant does. He doesn't ask, what will make me most happy? Uh, Or or what is best for me? He asks, what is best for those I serve? And does this reflect our attitude in the church, in our missional families, with our spouses? Does this reflect our attitude uh, in our workplace? Are we quick to serve and slow to receive glory or hold on to that glory and think we deserve it? So it's the humility of Christ in substance, humility of Christ in service, and now the humility of Christ in submission. Humility of Christ in submission. It says in our text, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. By becoming obedient. Christ was perfectly obedient to the Father. John chapter 14, verse 31, I believe it's up on the screen. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. John chapter 8 verse 29 says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And in Luke chapter 22 verse 42, Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is our perfect example of submission through obedience. Uh, Christ was willing to be obedient in every situation in order to unify the relationship between us and the Father and those that put their faith in him. Christ was willing to give up his glory in obedience to the Father. Um, Do we submit to the word of God? Do we submit to what God has called us to do? James chapter 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourselves to God, not only to God, but to those God has put over you. Hebrews 13, 17 It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. So not only do we submit ourselves uh, to God's word, but we also submit ourselves to those that God has put over us. Uh, Romans 13, 1 says, let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So a humble servant, a humble attitude is submissive to God's word and to those God has put over them. And obedience to God's word will lead to unity, indefinitely. Uh, If we adhere to the word of God, we will move toward greater unity in the church. Romans chapter 12, verses 18 through 21 says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. 
So these are commands from Scripture. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, Bear with each other. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. If we take seriously the study of Scripture and the application of the Bible and grow in our obedience and submission to it, then that will be evident in our unity, both in our family and in the church. A humility in submission. And finally, humility in sacrifice. Humility in sacrifice. Verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, for Jesus, perfect obedience to the Father meant great opposition and eventually death. And this is humility at its fullest. Like the hymn writer says, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? The author of life humbly submits to death. The one who had no sin humbly took sin onto himself. The one that gives life to whomever he wishes and raises to life those that have died in humility stayed on the cross until death took him. Jesus Christ was willing to sacrifice everything for us. He doesn't owe us anything, but he laid down his life. Not only did Christ humble himself in obedience in life and humble himself in obedience to death, but he died on a cross, as our text says. And in those days, uh, nobody's walking around with a cross necklace, cross tattoos, there's no crosses on the church building. Cross meant one thing. That was the worst, most humiliating way to die um, to date at that point. And this was the cross in that day. This, this is the death that Christ took. Our humility should be a copy, as much as within our power, as much as within us, of the condescension of the Son of God himself. What are we willing to sacrifice? Is it possible that there's con uh, conflict in our relationships, wherever that might be, because we are unwilling to sacrifice for others. We're not willing to sacrifice our time and our energy to encourage another. We're not willing to sacrifice financially to those that might need it. What are we willing to sacrifice for the betterment of others? Um, Calvin, John Calvin, a Reformation theologian, I think sums up the pra practical applications of these verses uh, quite well and simply. He said, Since then, the Son of God descended from so great a height how unreasonable that we, who are nothing, should be lifted up with pride. So the humility of Christ in substance, in service, in submission, and finally in sacrifice. And this, I believe, moving towards Christ-like humility is to move towards Christ-centered unity in the church. I'm going to finish uh, just with a brief word on the exaltation of Jesus Christ, the last few verses of our text, verses 9 through 11, that read like this. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want you to follow me here because I don't want to 
It could be a bit confusing, but I hope it's not. The humiliation of Christ was fully compensated by God, the Father. In fact, it was totally reversed. Uh, If you read in verse 6, it says, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But then it says in verse 9, that God highly exalted him. Verse 7 says that he emptied himself. But verse 9 says that God has given him the name that is above every name. Verse 7 says that he took the bond, the form of a servant. But verse 10 says that every knee shall bow at the name of Jesus. Verse 8 says that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. But verse 11 says that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is no mere baby in a manger or great teacher or mighty prophet. We worship, serve, and trust the exalted Christ who is eternally worthy of an exclusive name, sovereign lordship, and universal worship. In John chapter 17, verses 4 through 5, Jesus prayed this. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. God answered that prayer. The Father highly exalted his son, Jesus Christ. And these last three verses don't just highlight the present exaltation of Christ, but also the future realization of his exaltation. As if to say, the holy angels in heaven will bow before Christ. The glorified spirits of the redeemed will bow before Christ. The Christ followers on earth will bow before Christ. The unbelieving sinners in the world will bow before Christ. The devil, his demons, all the lost souls will bow before Christ. To acknowledge him now is to receive his grace. To acknowledge him later is to suffer his judgment. Now you may bow and confess. Then you must bow and confess. Now it may be in joy. Then it will be in terror. Today you can confess him as Lord and Savior. Uh, Then it will only be as Lord. And for those of us that are believers, we worship an exalted Christ. One that has defeated the power of death and sin and has taken the wrath of God on himself in our stead. Uh, Now let's follow in his example of humility and pursue unity through the means of humility and daily stoop to serve others, humble ourselves in our obedience to the word of God and sacrifice for the benefit of God of others. And if you're not a believer today, uh, wherever you might be, I'd like you to know uh, that Christ, fully God and fully man, came into the world he created, lived a perfect life, died for sinners. Uh, If you'll turn from your sins, put your faith in Christ and confess him as Lord, he is faithful and just to forgive all of our sin and to mend that relationship that was once broken with the Father. You can have joy and satisfaction in this life and a hope for eternal life in the next. Unity through humility. So the motivation of Christian unity uh, is what Christ has done and what he continues to do for us. The matter of Christian unity is a common perspective of gospel views, a common passion, a love for one another, a common purpose to spread the gospel and glorify God. And then the means of Christian unity is to live like Christ in his perfect example as mentioned in verses 5 through 11. I'm going to ask the praise team to come on up and I'll be closing in prayer together.